Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vaga Maradian, from the Reagan National Defense Forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. U.S. and European defense and aerospace stock performance as America posts strong jobs numbers as inflation and gas prices drop and markets hope the Federal Reserve will ease off on increasing short-term borrowing rates to control inflation. Still, recession worries loom as major tech firms cut back on workforce that could end up benefiting defense contractors. Senior executives, including here at the Reagan Forum, worry that a looming recession might reduce valuations and make raising capital difficult, not just for themselves, but for their second and third tier suppliers. Airbus production falls short of goods as the European giant cuts its dependence on Russian titanium and revelations that the T-7 trainer by Boeing and Saab for the U.S. Air Force will be further delayed. And finally, Northrop Grumman has unveiled its new B-21 Raider bomber for the U.S. Air Force at the service's legendary Plant 42 in Palmdale. California. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Rockron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Ablafia of the Teal Group Consultancy uh, in sunny Washington, D.C. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure uh, having you guys on the program, especially given uh, the vast time differences involved to try to help make this happen today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here, Vago. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. Great to be on, Vago. Thanks. Uh, an absolute pleasure, uh, guys. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. Our coverage of the Association of the United States Army. Uh, Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And our coverage of... Uh, both the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan Forum here in California uh, were sponsored and are sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who cleared the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again uh, for uh, joining us, especially given the vast disparity of time uh, among us all. Uh, Ron, um, I want to get to B-21 uh, as, as well, because you were our special correspondent at that uh, event. Uh, but start us off on the week on world markets, uh, right? I mean, folks coming out of Thanksgiving, it was a little bit of a slow start because uh, some folks tend to extend a little bit. Uh, what are some of the big trends uh, that we saw that were driving markets more broadly, right? Some very positive economic news, some positive inflation news, gas prices down. Uh, but at the same time, tech companies, you know, firing at a pretty big rate and all eyes were on the defense sector to see whether defense companies might actually follow suit uh, as well among some. How did the defense and aerospace group fare or the S&P broadly for the week was up a little over a percent. Uh, Boeing was up about two and a half percent. Northrop, three and a half percent. Raytheon, three and a half percent. Lockheed Martin, about two and a half percent. Huntington Ingalls, four and a half percent. They were kind of the winner on the week. Uh, but but broadly, uh, things things went, went OK. Uh, the 10 year yield, uh, which we you know talk about uh, weekly, uh, declined a bit. Right. And just the market may be pricing in that that interest rates won't go go quite as high as maybe folks were thinking at one point. But but there is 
you know, there's still this tension in the market because um, you had um, the, you know, the, the work numbers that came in in terms of- Ron, you were completely dropping out. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Bad, bad. No. So, ready? One, two, three. So the, I would say the tension on the street was um, uh, the employment numbers that came in uh, late in the week. Um, it came in stronger than people were anticipating, both in, term, in ter both in terms of uh, levels of employment and in uh, wage rates. And the, I guess the fear is you get into this this wage price spiral, um, and and we're not we're not there yet, but that is something that it will be on the mind of the Fed when they look at uh, further interest rates hikes. Uh, I think at the next meeting of the Fed, uh, the the broad expectation is that they'll go fifty basis points. But the question is, you know, 50 basis points, how many times and you know, where do we ultimately end up? You know, do we end up at um, somewhere in you know, the, the high 4% range, 5% range, 6% range? And that's you know, what, what the market has to sort through. But I would say broadly, the market's discounting in probably the worst of inflation is behind us, although it'll be with us for a while. Um, but now the, the real question is, and we're getting this from investors, as we roll into 2023, what right. does the downturn look like? Is it a soft landing? Is it a harder landing? And, and then what's that mean for um, you know, the entire uh, uh, market from the consumer complex to the industrials to everything? And obviously, markets were a little bit buoyed because Jerome Powell said, "Hey, we might uh, revise. You know, we might revisit our plan to continue uh, raising short-term borrowing rates." Right. So investors greeted that with some satisfaction. Yeah, but he didn't really. I mean. I mean, I'm not I'm not the Fed watcher, but he, he didn't really change anything in what he said, right? Right, I mean, right. You know, they're just kind of he's just repeating what he said. And the expectation has been for a while that they'll go from a 75 basis point right. hike to a 50 basis point hike. And then the question then will become how many times do the 50 basis point hikes, right? Because you know, simple math, you do four of those. Well, then that's 200 basis points, right? So just right. how many, how many of those do they do? Uh, a, a simple math uh, equation, obviously. Um, really quick on the on on whether or not defense companies might also start shedding. Right, I mean, we've seen this sort of spread across high tech companies uh, and reduction of workforce. Uh, you know, and so some friends were saying, "Hey, you know, I wonder whether or not that spreads uh, to defense contractors as well." Some saying, "Like, look, you know, we are bearing inflation uh, pressures. Uh, we're under contracts. Uh, you know, obviously the department is working with companies uh, to do equitable uh, adjustments." I mean, any sense whether uh, some of this high-tech jobs contain uh, spreads it all to the defense and aerospace sectors? Yeah, Paco, I think it's a great question. And my, my answer would be this, absolutely positively not. Um, every company you speak to in the defense sector, and for that matter, in commercial aerospace, the issue is they have a they, they have not enough labor. And, and, it's, right. it's, and the issue is really around high-skilled labor. Um, I think the question we should be asking are some of the some of the talent that is getting laid off at some of these, you know, quote unquote, higher tech firms, um, are is that can that labor go into um, higher skilled jobs uh, in the aerospace and defense sector? Probably, maybe in some software positions. But I mean, if you were writing algorithms at Facebook, that probably doesn't qualify you to do run a forge. Um, and and that's that, that's the issue that our that our industry is running into. That and you hear it across the board, across the supply chain from primes all the way down to, you know, a tier 
six, let's go all the way down, little, little companies that everybody's short labor uh, and specifically skilled labor. So I, I think, you know, the, the, the odds of our sector laying off people are, are as close to zero as they could possibly be. Um, I, I should have also said that that while there were some people who were expressing like, okay, does this spread to defense contractors? There were others who were saying the industry can't get enough jobs uh, to start with, uh, and uh, they might actually benefit from some of the people who are being uh, let go from other places, especially if they have uh, particularly uh, important skills, whether it's on the software side, the coding side, uh, and 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 what have you. Uh, and, and, uh, and one point I might add, right? I mean, I was talking to uh, one one company this week that uh, is domiciled in. Huntsville, Alabama, and they get a certain specific bearing from a, a producer, I think, in a small town in New Hampshire. And like, literally, there's like five people in this town who know how to make the bearing. And if you lose one of them, you lose 20% of your workforce, right? So it's, they're running, they're running into those kind of issues. And, and then I would say one last piece that's not broadly appreciated, maybe in this community, but definitely not in the investment community, aerospace designs are around for decades. And you start dealing with sourcing parts that are kind of in the tail of the supply chain, particularly around electronics. And you look at you know the flight deck on a 737NG, I mean, the electronics on that are, are pretty darn old. And right. that, those electronics just don't get updated as, as, as chip sizes get smaller and processors get smaller. So a, a real challenge here is a, a lot of the supply chain stuff used in aerospace and, and defense ultimately becomes pretty bespoke in in nature because it's low volume and it tends to be interestingly enough even though you think about aerospace as high tech it tends to be an older generation of technology just because of the life cycle of the programs let, let me ask uh, just one more question before we go to the group and thanks very much for your patience sash and and, and richard uh jim take uh, Lockheed's chairman and ceo um you know at the forum uh discussed the pressures um, on the ability to raise capital and on valuations and, and their commitment to actually help uh, the second and third tier uh, guys who supply them, right? I mean, a lot of the big companies do have gotten some credit uh, for working uh, to shield uh, some of those guys. We saw that during COVID and, and beyond. Is there a sense on how an economic downturn is gonna, could have a kind of a trickle-down effect uh, across the entire ecosystem? Yeah, and let me let me start this. And I know I know Richard's firm's done some work on this specifically on the commercial side, but as as you go down in in the supply chain, uh, the, the smaller suppliers are of course much more sensitive to this. So in an environment where interest rates are higher, materially higher than where they were just a year ago, um, and you have inflation, and you can have an economy that's slower, uh, that will make life most likely more difficult just from a financial balance sheet perspective for smaller companies. Larger companies presumably can deal with it. They might have some more interest expense, but broadly they have kind of more buffer in their balance sheet. But for, for the smaller suppliers, it, it could definitely definitely make life more, more challenging. As an example, Triumph Group, <clears throat> excuse me, just this week uh, did, a, did a rights offering to raise capital to help you know, buffer their balance sheet. Um, and you know, a rights offering is it's a fine thing to do, but it's it's you know, how can I say it's uh, you can it's like taking a page of a little bit out of the arcane in the financial world. It's used more often in Europe and so on and so forth. Um, so companies are, and I think that's Triumph Group trying to be a bit more creative in the current environment to raise capital. Sash, um, let's uh, go over to uh, European markets. How did the group fare? Uh, same. 
uh, ecosystem question to you, right? I mean, you guys are uh, inflation pressures are running high. So what is the impact on the ability to raise capital and primes to support their second and third tier, especially, um, you know, as we've seen, inflation is a little bit more of a persistent challenge for Europe than it is here in the United States. I'm, I'll, I'm going to deal with that last question first. Inflation is more persistent in Europe than it is in the US, but it is still a relatively transient affair. It is a one, two, probably not more than a two year affair. Uh, and then it, it gets tamed in some way. So the issue is how do companies deal with that timing problem? I totally agree with Ron. There is not a single company, civil or military, that we have talked to or even you know, looked at that would dream of cutting their workforce at this stage just because of inflation. Um, they are all short of uh, uh, employees. They're all short of capacity of every single sort. And the idea that they would deal with, deal with an inflationary problem that is a, a transient one in the, in the longer term scheme of things by cutting um, uh, you know, the workforce, that would be uh, clinically insane. Uh, and no management that I can, you know, we've come across would, would do that. Um, can they, uh, you, know, um, you know, can they finance their uh, working capital? Can they finance their, uh, you know, tier two, tier two, three, tier four? Yes, they can. European companies generally have stronger balance sheets because they didn't spend as much time and didn't, certainly didn't spend as much money giving uh, cash back to shareholders in the run up to the pandemic as US companies did. You know, compare and contrast, uh, Boeing and Airbus. Air, uh, Airbus enters um, the pandemic with over 10 billion euros of net cash and Boeing en enters it with 40 billion in net debt. Um, Airbus has got the ability where it has to, to support its supply chain. And, you know, you can make the same comments about um, big civil su uh, suppliers like Safran or defence companies like um, uh, BA Systems or Talis. These are very, very well-capitalized businesses. Um, and in fact, because they are so well-capitalized, they can now talk about the luxury of the choices they have. Do they want to do acquisitions? Do they want to return any capital to, in to investors? Do they want to um, spend more on R&D? Do they want to spend more on capital? But um, they certainly are not going to be spending it, um, spending anything on cutting employees uh, at this stage of the cycle because we're in a probably decade-long upcycle in defence and we're in a very, very sharp upcycle in, in civil, albeit one which we're going to talk about later, which is going to um, be very, very tough in terms of managing the, the production ramp for um, the, the main Airbus uh, narrowbodies. So back to the performance of the stocks this week. Europe was unbelievably boring by comparison with, with the US. Um, almost no reaction to uh, macroeconomic or, or political news. The stocks, all of the stocks ended, um, you know, on average, just under, in fact, not even a percent down. The spread, um, there were a couple of bad performing defence stocks. Um, Babcock was down 3% um, and Hensolt uh, was down 4%. But actually, most other defence stocks were up between one and two percent. And the civil stocks, even Airbus, about you know, which has been a lot of news, that was down about two percent. But uh, you know, MTU and and so forth uh, were were up about a percent. So you know, there was really very very little in terms you know uh, in terms of differentiation of performance this week at all. 
Um, just uh, before we go to Richard and commercial uh, aircraft, uh, uh, President uh, Biden and Emmanuel Macron uh, met in Washington. It was Biden's first state visit. It was the second uh, state visit for Macron uh, coming to the United States. What were some of the messages that Europeans took away uh, from the meeting? Because they were talking about everything from Russia uh, to American subsidization of computer chips and uh, clean energy, uh, which was a challenge. I know they talked about the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it's very clear that they also talked about the AUKUS arrangement uh, as the United States had said, hey, we're going to try to find a way to accommodate and, and make France whole uh, in the wake of uh, the termination of their submarine contract to clear the way for Australia, Britain, and America to work together to develop a uh, class of nuclear attack submarines or nuclear attack submarines for uh, Australia. What were some of the nuanced messages you pulled away from that? The um, Franco-US relationship is incredibly strong. Um, and it has been arguably for about 15 years, possibly possibly even a bit more. It, it reached an absolute low point um, uh, at the, you know, just after the um, Iraq war and then really improved dramatically um, over, you know, uh, over uh, the subsequent decade or so. And this very much, um, you know, emphasized that. The fact that France is a major player in the Pacific, uh, is, you know, of the European nations is clearly significant. France is a nuclear nation. Uh, it's one of the, you know, um, the, the uh, permanent uh, five members of the Security Council. So these are, you know, this is a stronger relationship. Emmanuel Macron clearly wants to get back to, a, you know, the top table. The whole AUKUS thing was very, very painful, I think, for him uh, personally. Um, Australia, to be clear, Australia has made France whole in terms of the uh, cancellation of the submarines. Australia paid over $600 million uh, of uh, penalties, cancellation uh, fees uh, for, for those. Um, you know, more broadly, there are big areas of uh, friction. Um, and France, I think, was trying to represent the European Union in terms of um, clean energy, in terms of, uh, sub, you know, by America versus by European, or indeed by America versus actually by, uh, by your allies. Um, I don't think that, you know, I think the mood music was good, but I think the detail was very, very lacking. And certainly uh, some interesting messaging, right? I mean, the United States looking at China as a potential enemy, whereas uh, the French have a slightly more moderated uh, approach to say that, you know, I mean, it is it is a challenge and, and one that we're following very closely. At least that's a public message. Obviously, in private, uh, the, the dialogue can be a little bit sharper uh, and would point out that in the wake of Brexit, you know, American officials point out that, well, we need a strong American. America, you know, a way to reflect American attitudes in the EU. And Britain is uh, the nation that used to do that on behalf of the United States. And now with no Britain, obviously, uh, folks are uh, in Washington are working more closely with Paris. Uh, Richard, you I mean, have listen, I've, I've got I've got to cut in there. Don't ever think that France will represent the US strongly in the EU if that is against France's interests in the EU. That would be naive. Um, that is, uh, nobody is that naive, uh, which is the reason why the outreach has gone out to many more nations uh, across uh, the EU to work more closely with them, uh, obviously, because there was, uh, again, I mean, the sense that the UK was always a strong advocate of the US and a US position uh, and free market positions and a number of other ones that were mutually advantageous from a transatlantic perspective. Richard, you have been extremely patient. Uh, I want to get your sense on a lot of the broader economic uh, drivers, uh, you know, before we get into the Airbus uh, production uh, 
uh, numbers uh, that uh, have come out, uh, as well as Airbus's uh, decision to wean itself entirely off of Russian titanium, which is also a very significant step that has ramifications industry-wide. I want to get everybody's take on the on the commercial aircraft production numbers. Uh, obviously, Boeing, you know, everybody has faced these uh, challenges. Things are getting delayed because there aren't enough engines uh, because of supply chain uh, snags as, as well. But give us that broader, you know, Iran uh, referred to a study that you've done on this uh, very, very question. So, so give us sort of your broader sense uh, before we get into the commercial aircraft discussion. You know, I, I think this is not coming as a, a huge surprise. There are a number of dynamics in play. And uh, my co-managing director and company founder, Kevin Michaels, has been pointing out uh, that the real risk to a lot of suppliers is uh, not in the, the pit of despair that we've come through, of course, as a consequence of the pandemic, but in the ramp. Because, of course, these companies sold everything that couldn't be nailed down, lost a lot of good people. They're having a hell of a hard time getting back, uh, drained their coffers, of course, went into debt did everything they could to survive, and they survived. Uh, but now, of course, they need working capital to ramp up, and this is becoming a heck of a problem. And maybe this becomes uh, a driver behind M&A and activity, particularly in the you know third and fourth tier and, and, and whatever else. Uh, one interesting dynamic that I think sort of kicks in when you look at not just uh, the supply chain, but also production rates, is that you've got a bit of inflation built into both defense and business jets. Both you're seeing a fascinating dynamic where people holding the line saying, well, no, demand is up, but we're not raising rates. Uh, and in the case of you know, key defense programs like F-35 and whatever else, they're, they almost seem to be limiting production and limiting you know, sales, or at least conversion of sales into firm orders uh, in order to hold the line in pricing. Like this is, <laughs> we're raising pricing. That's, that's what happens when demand goes up. And certainly you're seeing that with business chats, things are fantastic from the indicators, but no one is raising production rates to any meaningful degree, maybe GD at the margins. Um, that to me says that everyone is saying, gee, let's let's get this higher demand translated into higher prices and let's all benefit. You don't see that demand on the commercial side of things, in part because inflation pass-through provisions are a bit of a squirrely thing in the commercial jetliner business. And so many contracts were signed years ago. You know, that's we had 12,000 jets in the backlog. That's the good news. The bad news is we have 12,000 jets in the backlog that were signed back in pre-inflationary times with relatively limited inflation pass-through provisions. So the consequences for the supply chain on the jetliner side of the house, I think, are fairly profound. You know, it, it's possible to do well on the defense side of things. And uh, I think <laughs> Ron came out a little while ago with his uh, rather classic historic, you know, this is what you do if you launch an F-35 or a part of the F-35 program. This is your indemnification against cancellation. This is your guaranteed profit level. This is what happens is if you do a new commercial jet it's got none of that and it's really kicking in that dynamic and of course the resulting pain that the supply chain is feeling uh, it's really a commercial jetliner problem and uh, you know you also have something i've been anticipating for some time which is the crowding out effect that's similar which is basically that when you have this cost plus dynamic where you can hold the line on pricing and say here's the price take it or leave it on you know, again, fighter jets, or for that matter, business jets, they're going to be able to set the terms for wages at, 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 you know, at the labor level. They're going to set the terms for materials, energy, whatever else, whatever investments they need to make, they can make them 
and have a nice, healthy, guaranteed profit margin. None of that is true in commercial jets. So it's not a surprise, therefore, that's where you're seeing the greatest area of disappointment, I guess, on the commercial jet liner side. Do you, um, before we go to uh, production numbers and, and uh, titanium, I mean, uh, at, at, I mean, does this sort of justify Dave Calhoun's decision not to, you know, is this a good justification not to develop a new aircraft at Boeing? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, however, I think things have gotten so dire at Boeing that he really doesn't, I think any rational CEO doesn't have a choice. In other words, people have been making that calculation for so long that, well, whoops, they've got this big hole in their product line and they're losing market share at an alarming rate and will continue to do so. So in other words, um, you could see an argument for pushing it off or slow rolling it or something. But the idea right. is saying, nope, not for a decade. That's basically company suicide. <laughs> that's, we're going out of the business. We're losing our capabilities. We are no longer a commercial generator producer 15 years hence or 20 years hence or whatever. Right. That is a very different dynamic. Could you make an argument of looking at this? Maybe you want to put this off for another year, talk about an ATO in a year or two. I mean, one aspect, of course, is that the broader economy is likely to soften, as we've all been saying. And for me, from my standpoint, that's actually kind of good news. Um, <laughs> I'm not rooting for a recession here, but on the other hand, a little bit um, a freeing up of productive resources, particularly in the form of engineers and technical people, that would be kind of good for the industry right now. And uh, what about Airbus production numbers and Airbus's uh, decision on titanium? Not a huge surprise, but they appear to be disappointing in terms of getting to the, the 700 goal for commercial jets for this year. Um, things are up a little bit. You know, the 320, I think, through end of November is, uh, you can correct me on this, uh, Ron, but I think it's in the four, or Sash, but I think it's in the, the 420 range. You know, it looks like they'll be able to get somewhere in the, in the 600s, but 700, no way, unless they have a heck of a blowout December. Um, and a lot of it, of course, yes, engines, casting, and forgings, which gets us to the titanium question, because, of course, that's a, that's a big piece of that, you know, engine uh, supply chain bottleneck. Um, the decision to wean off Russia, it's, it's, you know, probably reading the room from a, a geopolitical reality sense. Um, it's not just optics. It's also being dependent upon them. Um, and just, you know, not having that disadvantage in the future uh, of being dependent, whereas Boeing has moved on to, you know, sourcing from Malmet or whoever. It's a decision I think the West has to make to decouple with extremely, you know, strategic materials, especially in the castings and forgings, the real value add part of it, the sponge, who the hell cares? But in terms of castings and forgings, it's a decision that needed to be made, and I'm, I'm glad they did. Um, Sash, uh, you've got your uh, hand up. Yeah, I mean, just to you know, um, come back to the issue of, of Airbus uh, deliveries so far. And, you know, we won't get the official number for uh, November until uh, next week. But um, just looking at how Airbus has been tracking in terms of monthly deliveries through the year, it's actually almost exactly, I mean, within a couple of aircraft on um the rate of 2015. 2015, Airbus delivered 635 aircraft. Well, that's way below their 700 aircraft uh, forecast. So, you know, a uh, bit of a pickup in November, they can probably beat that. They're going to need a really good December. But if they 
um, get to the level of 2016, um, which would still be, you know, very impressive indeed, that would get them deliveries of about 685. Now, you know, 685 versus 700, it's, that's not dramatic of itself. The problem is that this gives you a really good idea of what the run rate going into 2023 is, and that would tend to suggest that 2023 is going to be disappointing. And there's not a lot of point in ramping your production if you can't put engines on these things at the end, because all that will happen is that Airbus will be delivering or building gliders that they can't deliver. So my guess would be that if they um, come in somewhere in the 680s for this year, then they are not going to want to be very punchy on their forecasts for 2023, because um, it just tells us that the problems, particularly from the engine makers, is, are much more systemic than they had feared. And even if they improve by the end of next year, they're going to have a really, really slow first couple of quarters. Ron, your sense on all this? You brought up something at the beginning about it being the engine makers, and that might be more the case for Airbus. Uh, I think one of the, the interesting things that fell out of the, the, the Boeing Investor Day, Capital Markets Day, was that on the quarter, they were saying, you know, the engine makers are the issue. But then when we all took a tour of the 737 line, um, we found out quickly it, it wasn't the engine makers. It was other issues um, on the line. I, I think as we go into 2023 and possibly even 2024, both manufacturers uh, and the defense OEMs will still be plagued by supply chain issues. And a lot of that has to do with labor. Uh, period. Um, so I think it's it's just going to take time. And, and what I tell people all the time is if you look at when Boeing had their last strike, so it was back in 2008, right? When you were going into the financial crisis, um, uh, Boeing Seattle went on strike, IAM went on strike. And um, it and they stroke, I mean, the strike was, I think, about a month long. They shut down production. Might have been a quarter. I forget exactly. But the important point is, you know, I actually think it was a quarter that they were on strike. Um, it took about three years to recover from that. And that was recovering from a much shorter shutdown in a much more normal supply chain environment that wasn't plagued by labor shortages uh, and in some cases, some pretty extreme material shortages. So just kind of getting everything back to quote unquote normal this time around is just going to take a lot of time and probably more than people think. Well, I mean, right. Um talking about taking a lot of time, um, you know, anytime a company gets in trouble, production is right. I mean, all of these things take time. Uh, obviously, Boeing has a fair share of challenges. We've discussed that uh, on the program. Uh, there is confidence that Ted Colbert is working pretty hard uh, on uh, the defense uh, space uh, and security side of the company uh, to sort things out. But we've got, you know, obviously we knew that T7 uh, had uh, its uh, challenges. Um, you know, Richard, uh, you're the one who added this to our list of topics to discuss, uh, right? I mean, every week we exchange <laughs> about 150 uh, texts uh, as we're going through the week about what it is we should be talking about and what's, what, what are headlines we should be paying attention to. What, what do we know now and, and what's your concern and your, your take, Richard, on the T7 news? Yeah, you know, it, uh, it, news has come out that there's going to be a delay into 2024 uh, for the T7 program. You know, there are a number of issues. For one, of course, it just adds on to the pile of 
BDS programs that are costing Boeing a great deal of money. And what used to be a kind of buildup of profit to counterbalance any uh, you know commercial cyclicality has now become a, becoming a massive list of losses. And I think over the past nine years or whatever, it's up to like what eleven point five billion or something like that, led by KC forty six. And it looks like T seven is going to become a contributor to that because they signed a deal that you know was notionally sixteen billion should cost 14 and they signed it at 9.7 you know things are going to go horribly wrong another problem is that you know boeing had sort of touted this as sort of a great test of digitization you know model-based stimulation engineering and bse and, and digital design digital threads right digital digital uh, voodoo dolls and and whatever else yeah that's <laughs> right you know and it, it oh, apparently, i'm gonna call I'm going to call foul on that a little bit, but okay. All right, go ahead. <laughs> well, somebody stuck a pin in the digital voodoo doll somewhere in the uh, the wing area. And as, <laughs> as a consequence, you know, as with KC-46, there's the problem of the legacy fleet that's extremely old. In this case, of course, the T-38, supersonic trainer, advanced trainer, and that has to be kept in service longer. There is the risk that the Air Force looks at alternatives, although it doesn't appear to be happening with you know, another with Casey, why it might happen. Similarly, they might just incline to say, gee, Lockheed or, or Finn Mechanica, what are your deals for your advanced trainers, an interim batch or something? And, uh, you know, so you've got this hideous mix of stuff um, that I think has negative read through on so many different levels, um, losses for Boeing, digitization oversold, perhaps. And then, of course, the prospect of alternatives coming in. But most of all, uh, I think the really interesting thing is to what extent is all this horrible performance going to contribute towards, you know, declaments, I think is the term in the KPPs for future contracts. Right. Uh, will, for example, if, if Boeing loses far along with Lockmart, will that partly be a function of past performance on all these other programs? If they were been frozen out of uh, NJAD, you know, is that also because of past performance? To what extent does all this past performance begin to weigh on future competitiveness? Yeah, but it's it's not abundantly clear uh, to be candid. I mean, some of the past performance challenges were known, and they still won T seven, right? So, I think I think theoretically, past performance matters, uh, or we've said it matters, or we've said it's a parameter. It's not abundantly clear to me that it's a parameter. If you come in and you promise an unobtained, you know what I mean, an unreasonable sure. price, the department has been seemed perfectly comfortable saying, okay, yeah, I'll buy it for it. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to hold you to it. Right. Um, now there is some speculation that the Flora program, um, is trying to take that into account to try to prevent somebody from lowballing right. uh, to buy into the program. Uh, but you know, I mean, we, we've seen that, right. I mean, if we've seen this play X number of times, um, you know, I mean, it's not unreasonable to think that it could be you know, that that could be playing out again, uh, right? Yeah, but, I mean, but, it's going to be know, interesting we, to watch. We, we've seen it with relative commodity programs, not to say that trainers and tankers and whatever else are a, a commodity. But on the other hand, they're not quite as, say, performance-based as a bomber, which, of course, they will lost LRSB or FARA or NJAD right. or whatever else. This is a right. different sort of area where, you know, it, it's not a question of producing something. You know, you can build an advanced trainer. Yeah, you can do that, of course, or you know, ditto for the, uh, you know, for um, obviously a, a tanker. Right. But to actually create a sixth generation combat aircraft, that's very different. Uh, it, it, uh, it is, it is indeed. Um, although I think that there is a sense, um, 
I mean, people really like the F-15EX uh, in the Air Force in part because of its payload capacity, uh, right? And that's a pretty much of a sure thing that Boeing actually might be able to do better on, even if for, for those of us and, and for those of us who attended the West Coast Aerospace Forum, uh, Cruiser Wilsbach, uh, the, the four-star who com- uh, commands PACAF or Pacific Air Forces, um, you know, talked about how an F-15 uh, actually with uh, the pause capability on it uh, can... Um, you know, have some attributes that we normally um, associate with a, with a fifth generation of full stealth airplane, uh, and, you know, in, in, in the portfolio, you know, more sort of varied portfolio and to make sort of legacy capabilities or existing or older capabilities more relevant into the, into the future. Um, let me, uh, Ron, uh, go to you and get your take on, on T7 and anything new you want to add, because I know that uh, Sash wants to add uh, some uh, T, uh, some Tempest news uh, that uh, he expects. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I, I guess on T7, the, the additional delays aren't all that surprising given you know, Boeing's track record on um, new new defense programs. I guess what really is disappointing, at least for Boeing, T7 was supposed to be the poster child of you know all things digital and the digital thread and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, I really do wonder you know which consulting agency came up with the digital thread. Um, but I, I always kind of look at the stuff with a grain of salt. Well, I mean, not to interrupt, but... Right. I mean, the Air Force played along with that and didn't say that it's the T-7. It's the ET-7, right, for the the new electronic uh, way of design that we're going to have for the airplane, but, right? I mean, but, so but that Vago, was a part of the narrative. And, you know, I mean, we've had techniques to design um, using computer-aided design and otherwise for for, for literally decades. Um, you know, the design process on 787, um, the aerodynamic design process was pretty darn sophisticated in that they could um, they could draft up a plane uh, digitally. They could do CFD on it uh, almost overnight, uh, make changes, and they could in, in almost real time be modifying the structure and running it through the physics. And, and that was all um, you know, electronic simulation, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I mean, I look at all this stuff really, truly as, with a grain of salt because it's, it's been around for a long time. Um, maybe there's some better interfaces between commercial software, some, some garbage like that. But I mean, the, the, the basic ability to design an airplane, not on paper and do it uh, electronically and then tie that in with some flight physics and, and also a shop floor physics and how you build it. Um, that's not new. All right. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, 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 I, I'm always kind of surprised at, you know, how it's just this whole thing is spun. It's, it's a six gen thing and it's going to be all digital. But so right. what? But right. I mean, triple seven was the first Katia design airplane. Uh, right. I mean, so you could say that none of this is, is necessarily new, um, you know, and your seven, eight, seven point is well taken. Yeah. But I mean, how long ago was triple seven? Not yesterday. Right. I mean, a lot's changed in terms of computational power and this and that. And, and in my experience, granted, I haven't been a practicing engineer in a long time, um, but the big limiting factor was always compute power. Uh, and if you had the compute power, right. you could do all kinds of things. And, and nowadays, you don't have to take a design, unload it, send it off to the supercomputing center at the University of Indiana or at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and get it processed. You can have a, a wall of... Uh, of just you know the PCs and you can do all that stuff real time locally. Yeah. So with the amount of compute power we have today, 
I don't know. I just impress me. I'm not impressed by it. You know what I mean? We've got a little bit of time uh, to go and still a lot of things to discuss, but go ahead, Sash. Uh, talk to us about your uh, Tempest FX line of reasoning and explain to the audience what's on your mind and why you think it's important. Okay, so um, Tempest is the um, Anglo-Italian uh, future combat aircraft system um, with some Swedish help uh, uh, on, on the side as well. And this is a program that's been underway now um, at the sort of uh, study stage for um, nearly nearly five years, about, yeah, five years. Um, what is has occurred over that time has been that there have been, uh, has been reaching out from the UK to Japan, uh, initially on engines and possible uh, co-development of engines, then on radar. Uh, and then there was an announcement earlier on this year that um, the UK and Japan would look to merge the Tempest program and the Japanese FX program. Um, Tempest and FX are very, very similar in terms of their basic uh, designs. I mean, they are uh, both long-range, heavy air superiority fighters. Uh, in the case of Tempest, re to replace the uh, Eurofighter Typhoon, probably in the in the 2040s. Um, FX technically is there to uh, replace the F2, which, as uh, you know, most of our listeners know, is a, is a sort of F16 on steroids. But actually, it's really to replace uh, early model F15s. Um, and there's always been this uh, relationship between the UK and Japan. I mean the uh, the, both countries have very similar air superiority requirements, long-range intercept of uh, Russian-stroke Chinese bombers um, with very, very long-range uh, missile uh, engagements. And um, I think what's interesting is that there's a very well-sourced um, article on Reuters um, uh, this weekend saying that the two programmes will officially merge um, uh, next week. Um, why is that good? Well, first of all, I mean, it means that, the, you know, the, the enlarged Tempest FX programme will have a scale um, that is very, very, you know, will we'll probably, it'll probably run into a production runner um, in four digits, which is, would neither program would do on their own. Um, it clearly gives a much greater degree of political underpinning to both programs, and that's important for any uh, company involved in things. And I think also, you know, if you look at Tempest versus the, the Franco-German-Spanish SCAF, FCAS program, um, now that program looks as well as if it's going to finally get get a go ahead for the for the next stage of its development uh, next week. Dasso was making comments to that effect, but um, you know I think bringing the Japanese into Tempest uh, really does give Tempest a, a very very significant uh, tailwind in terms of just you know where the where the politics is uh, and that's important for any program at this stage. But what what does this mean for the Swedes? Right, um, there is this sense that Saab was never really in, not really out. What does this mean for, for Sweden? Um, and increasingly, there's speculation the Swedes will end up with F-35 uh, at some point, uh, in not very many of them, but at least for interoperability reasons. I mean, all of their allies and partners around them have the jet. Um, what's sort of your sense on um, what it means for Saab, uh, a company that you cover closely, uh, and then Richard, want to get your sense sort of more broadly on this uh, as well, and and where the Swedes end up with with the with the the Gripen uh, at this point, given that uh, those orders that they had hoped are not materializing for the jet. Yeah, look, yeah, you're right. I mean, Gripen has not sold as well as Sweden or Saab hoped. Um, its anchor customer is Brazil. Brazil will come back and order another 
24, 36, 48 aircraft. Grip and production will go on um, at a pretty low level. You know, it's, a, it's around one a month. It'll go on through the next decade. But this is not going to be a program that's going to be produced in the, uh, you know, the, the high hundreds. Um, I think Saab would always have liked to have been involved in, in um, Tempest as an equal partner to the uh, Italians, but the Italians have just put up a ton more money. I mean, you know, Italy's funding for uh, Tempest is running into, uh, you know, it's well over a billion euros now. And Sweden itself has not been prepared to commit to a next generation fighter when they're only starting just now to, to take delivery of uh, the Gripen E, the, the very, very heavily upgraded Gripen. And, and I think what was interesting about the Swedish Defence Review, which was announced on the 1st of November, was a deafening silence about uh, what Sweden's uh, intentions for future, future fighter is. So, you know, does that mean that, does that create some space for F-35? Quite possibly. If it does, that kills Saab as a fighter manufacturer. Um, nobody should be under any doubt, you know, doubts about that whatsoever. And that, I think, would be an extremely sad thing. But, you know, if that's how Swedish politics works, uh, you know, that's that's where it will be. Richard? You yeah, know, very strong agreement uh, with Sash that this is something of a game changer, a potential working one. But it's not just the harmonization of requirements and the relative scale of requirements that are very similar. It's also the fact that this is the first time Japan will be engaged with an aerospace industry partner that kind of treats them as equals. Uh, that hasn't been the case. You know, you look at the F2 program with Lockheed Martin, Lockheed Martin is just, you know, okay, this is going to be maybe two or 3% of the F16 program, a little interesting sub variant or more major variant right. that we, you know, we, we learned a little bit about co-cured composites and, and the first day is a great fun. See you later. This is going to be more of, wow, okay, a marriage of equals, you know, I mean, BAE systems and I presume Mitsubishi, uh, Rolls-Royce military getting help. Well, that, that'll be, that'll outweigh IHI, but still it's the same sort of scale we're talking about here. And that's going to be really interesting from a future perspective. And of course, it's also, these are two of the very biggest F-35 customers. And historically, you know, Japan has been among the very biggest U.S. combat aircraft customers of all sorts. So I think the sort of upshot is that the U.S. might have lost a big chunk of future fighter demand, especially since NJAD, you know, <laughs> it's clearly not an export-oriented fighter, and it's probably going to be replaced in any future planning these folks might have been, do been doing right. for a, a capable interceptor by a an indigenous co-created project. So I think this is a, this is potentially a very big development here. Uh, and uh, do you think F-35 has a chance in Sweden? Uh, you know, for reasons I think you said, absolutely. Um, you know, just a few dozen for interoperability with Norway, Finland, and, uh, and whoever else. Um, does Denmark. Denmark, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah Poland. Germany, yeah, yeah, pretty much Germany. everyone. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, does that kill Greek and EF? It's not looking good, you know, as, as Sash said. It's it's Brazil, it's Sweden. The Czechs have defected to the F-35, you know. <laughs> You're running out of potential customers. There's the odd chance of a, of there was the odd chance of a game changer in India that seems to have kind of more or less fallen by the wayside. Romania at one point mooted. Now Romania is talking about negotiating right. four F-35s. The one thing I can't help but wonder is, you know, all this F-35 demand, Lockheed Martin is getting really tough on pricing and terms. And as part of that holding the line, as I mentioned at 156, you know, at some point, do prices go up? Does availability go down? Do people say, we really need a fighter this decade? Okay, Sweden, you've got idle capacity. Give us a couple dozen. Uh, and I'm thinking here of some other 
you know, Eastern European countries, again, particularly Romania, people who've been late to the F-35 game, who knows, maybe even Greece. Um, that I think is kind of an interesting, I call it a departure scenario. Um, we have a couple of minutes left. I want to go to uh, bring Ron uh, into the conversation. You were at the uh, B-21 Raider uh, rollout. Um, also a shout out that uh, Bud Anderson, uh, the uh, 102 years old, uh, oldest uh, surviving triple ace, was promoted by General C.Q. Brown, the chief of staff of the United States Air Force, uh, to Brigadier General Bud uh, Anderson, uh, and it's just extraordinary for anybody who's known uh, Bud as uh, not just a, a war hero, uh, but also uh, really a pioneering test pilot and an extraordinary uh, uh, aviator in the annals of not just the U.S. Air Force but American innovation. Uh, so we, uh, so that was really uh, a wonderful element. But then there was the big rollout uh, of uh, the bomber. Uh, extraordinary that in eight years we got here. The contract was awarded in 2014. A very hard-fought battle between Northrop uh, against Lockheed and Boeing, two very, very different approaches to the problem, just like they had in the first bomber uh, competition. But the airplane is smaller, um, and it was driven by a hard cost cap that uh, Bob Gates put in place and Ash Carter did. Uh, it was done to realize the airplane uh, and also get it to bigger numbers, right? So the tighter you were on cost, the more you could get it. There are 100 in the program right now. Dave Deptula has argued that because it is a smaller jet, it's much more of the, of the dean of the aerospace, uh, excuse me, of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies has argued, hey, you just need a lot more of these airplanes. Um, you know, and, and one of the criticisms is, it's great that we're doing this. Our mutual friend, uh, Tony Capasio of Bloomberg, uh, you know, pointed out without channeling too much of his Larry David curb your enthusiasm, you know, is like, listen, I want to just urge everybody to curb their enthusiasm. It's still seven to eight years away from really being realized um, with uh, the Air Force uh, and the company saying that, you know, the, the next time you're going to see the airplane and we didn't see all that much of it will be when it uh, when it uh, flies and six prototypes are under manufacture or early delivery articles or whatever you call them. Um, but again, I mean, one of the criticisms is it's a it's a smaller airplane. Uh, it's not as big as the bombers we have, um, you know, about 20,000 pounds of payload uh, before 1000 to 6500 miles of range, depending on who you listen to. Um, you know what you know and that we need something bigger with more range uh, ultimately uh, and be able to carry more more payload you know i would point out for historic reasons an a1 sky raider could carry you know 18000 pounds uh, of 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 payload run you know you you were there you're the engineer uh, you know about the technology what what, what were some of the takeaways uh, that you had as proud as we all are as aviation people for the introduction of a jet that by all accounts has some pretty extraordinary capabilities, right? I mean, even folks, when they say like, well, it's a little bit smaller and it doesn't have enough payload and might not have as much range, still say it does things that no other airplane on the planet can do. And as an American, I'm pretty damn proud of that. Yeah, I guess a, a couple observations. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough at the event. Uh, they had a B2 uh, outside that in fact you could take pictures of, which very rarely happens. Um, and, uh, and, but you get, get up a close and sort of personal with it. Uh, and, uh, and having the opportunity to do that and then see the rollout of the, of the B-21, there, there are some clear similarities between the two airplanes, right? I mean, it, you know, when you look at what B-21 ended up being, you're not all that surprised. Ultimately, I wasn't that uh, if this was what the vision was when it was originally reward, awarded, no wonder Northrop got it. 
Um, I, some quick observations, right? The the landing gear are smaller, so it's obvious that this thing uh, can't carry as much um, weight as uh, you know its, it's bigger older sister. Um, and uh, but it, it, it's advertised as you know sixth generation stealth. The way the engines are integrated, the way various things are done on the airplane, it looks a lot smoother. Um, meaning, I could see potentially where this thing could be really, 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 really difficult to see if you really wanted to find it, if you were an adversary. Um, it's an interesting mix in that it's kind of like, you know, if, if the B2 and a UAV got married and had a kid, it would kind of look like this, <laughs> you know? So you can imagine this thing flying in an unmanned mode, right? <laughs> and you can imagine this thing flying in a man mode, right? It really does seem like it's, this vehicle somehow crosses that line between both, that this could be unmanned or this could be manned. Right? I don't know clearly, right? Because all that stuff's classified. Right. But you were just just looking at it, the sizing of it, the scaling of it. Well, but they they'd said that it's optionally right. manned. Right? Right. I mean, they'd said originally that it would be optionally manned, and, and it, it needed manning for the nuclear emission, right? And but you can see that there, right? Um, and then I think other things that we that you, you don't see immediately, and and I think this will just kind of get play out in time. The fabrication of it, how they put it together. Like one of the things that takes so much time with the B2 is the, you know, when it goes through its maintenance cycles is what they do with the surface, the, you know, on resurfacing the airplane and all the maintenance right. they have to do for the low observables uh, on this aircraft, presumably it's a lot less. I know on the F-35, it was a lot less than on the F-22. So there's been lessons learned on that. And then on the fabrication of it, right? I mean, there's this, there's not that on any airplanes you have room for uh, being imprecise, but on a stealthy airplane, because of the low observables, you really have to be precise, right? So, um, right. you know, presumably there on the manufacturing front, there there'll be some lessons learned. I'd say from an investor perspective, right? From my understanding of the program, I mean, so far we've been in sort of cost plus mode. That's easy. When you start getting into production lots, you know, later. Um, my understanding is those are probably fixed priced. You know, there's some sort of fixed price option pricing set up and that's really from from a from a market perspective where the where the tire hits the road uh, but but I, I gotta say i mean you know from about i think it was really six years if you include the time of the the protest from when they really started working on it until they rolled something out the door getting it done in that time frame was was, was pretty darn impressive honestly uh it it is it is impressive i mean the last question i would ask is how much credit do you have to give to the f-35 program on this for pioneering, right? More durable stealth coatings, production processes. And think about it, right? You didn't have 12 partners working together with, you know what I mean? I mean, this was the US Air Force stringent requirement. It's an, it, it has no anti-tamper, at least I don't believe it has anti-tamper, right? I mean, so and it was with one customer, the United States Air Force that kept everything top secret. Yeah, well, I mean, you're always standing on the shoulders of the giants that came before you, right? I mean, and, and, and in this, it's hard to imagine that it wasn't the case. So can right. I speak to specific lessons on F-35? No, but for sure there were, right? I mean, as, as you know, Northrop was a big, the, the biggest subcontractor to rock it on F-35 and make exactly. a big piece of the structure. Um, I, I'm certain in, in that process, there was lessons learned in terms of um, automation of fabrication, repeatability of fabrication techniques, um, the things that you, that you need to do to, to get to that kind of quote unquote six level 
uh, uh, um, stealth and call it that sixth level of fabrication quality. Um, I mean, yeah, no doubt uh, things were learned. One interesting aspect that I think has come up is uh, given the changing strategic requirements of the Pacific Rim and given the relatively effective cost cap, uh, is there the prospect of an export here? You know, and uh, pe- right. people have mentioned Australia as being a possibility. And it's kind of intriguing. Um, you know, it, and the other thing I would point out is as we speculated before, what is NJAD? What does it look like? And you look at this thing and you say, it's not all that big as Ron says. It's obviously all the values in electronic systems and, and, and right. weapons and connectivity and everything like that. Could we be looking at a similar dynamic with NJAD where the reason it costs a couple hundred million is that we simply hit a wall. <laughs> Airframes just aren't that big a part of the cost equation. It really comes down to the tremendously sophisticated stuff on board. So maybe we've created with NJAD, whoever's right. doing it, and it's quite possible it's North Bremen, just this ultimate air dominance machine doesn't really necessarily look exactly like a fighter, but it has some of the economics of you know, a small bomber. Uh, and that, that's kind of interesting. It, it, it would be very interesting, right? And ultimately, if you need something with a lot of loiter time, uh, even at four or 6,000 miles, that's a lot of loiter time. You don't necessarily have to be that fast, depending on how you might want to be using it. Uh, and, and it all comes down to how much reach you can get on the weapons uh, that come off of the platform, right? I mean, historically, we've looked at you know, a bigger weapon is a longer range weapon with a bigger boom at the end of it, uh, right? I mean, which is a challenge. But then again, if you're looking at a whole series, you know, of it being able to carry a rotary magazine or something with a lot of weapons on it, um, then that actually changes the dynamic and goes back to what our, you know, mutual friend J.J. Gertler would always argue, right? Don't think of NGAD as another small fighter. It actually could be a, a significantly bigger airplane with very, very different characteristics at the end of the day. And that's what makes this uh, a particularly intriguing airplane in its size uh, class. And I hope that there is any tamper because I'm sure our Japanese friends might be able to use it. Our Australian friends might be able to use it. Uh, Sash, I would love to see a, uh, a Delta boomerang wing bomber uh, with an RA uh, roundel on the side of it as well and bring back uh, the dam busters in proper fashion. Vago, we, we had an enormous Delta 65 years ago. We're fine, but thanks. Yes. Well, it, it still ranks as one of my favorite <laughs> airplanes and I would love the V-Series to be resuscitated uh, somehow. Uh, everybody, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. It's an honor and pleasure as always uh, from uh, sunny California. Thanks so very much. It's great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thanks as always, Vago. Thanks for tying us all together, Vago. Great to be on.